welcome to today's edition of the Bradley Hall Show. I am your host, the Bradley Hall. All right, welcome back. Today, my guest is fellow NPE Jody Klugman Rab, and Jody is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she's also pursuing her PhD and doing some work in the NPE community around that, and we are happy to have her here today to discuss her NPE journey and the work she's doing in the community. But first, I just wanted to say thank you, whether you're watching or you're listening, we certainly appreciate your support. We'd like to ask you for your help to please share on social media and with someone you know that, that um, may be interested. For more information on what I do and how to work with me, please visit my website at www.thebradleyhall.com. Thank you for joining us, The Bradley Hall Show Live with uh, Jody Klugman. Yep. Rab. And Jody is a licensed family uh, therapist, and she has, uh, she is also an NPE or MPE, whichever terminology um, you like to use. And uh, you, you, you joined us this evening and agreed to share your story. And uh, then we'll talk a little bit about the work uh, that you're doing within the MPE community. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. What, whatever people really want to hear about, my passion is obviously talking about the work that I'm doing in the MPE community, but. I think it also makes sense to talk a little bit about my NPE story because without that, I wouldn't be doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, we're all human. We all want to hear everybody's story. That seems to be uh, the thing that everybody wants. So let's, uh, let's start with that. Okay. So 2014, I took a 23andMe test for fun, like a lot of people have said, uh, really with the hope of getting to know my father's side of the family, whom I always felt rather estranged from, never really felt like I was accepted and never understood why. Always ad- attributed it to maybe some unresolved feelings that they had toward my mom. It was her second marriage. She wasn't Jewish. I was grasping for reasons. When in the end, I think it just turned out to be the fact that I wasn't really my dad's kid. Go figure. (laughs) So a couple of years after I took that test is when it finally dawned on me what the results meant. So literally for two years, I kind of blissfully went around just not even really thinking about it. Just wondering, I wonder what that means that I'm 50% Scottish. Nobody's ever talked about having Scottish ancestry in the family. That's kind of cool though. I've always liked Scotland and always had a kind of a strong fascination with Scotland and just thought, oh, that's kind of neat. And then literally- You didn't didn't get into your your matches to the DNA? Okay. I didn't have any. I didn't have any that were close relatives, right? They were fourth, fifth cousins. They were really far removed. There were a lot of Celtic names in there that I'd never heard of before, but I wasn't expecting anything one way or the other. So I just thought, oh, that's weird. Okay. I have other things to think about. I'm going to go think about those things. (laughs) And it was literally while on vacation in Mexico, I'm sitting reading a book, probably the fact that I had, you know, let myself relax. And all of a sudden it hits me like somebody slaps me against the face. And I said, oh, 
for it to be 50%, that has to be a, a first degree relative. I know who my mom is, but I guess I don't know who my dad is. Like, how is that possible? Oddly enough, I had already had an MPE experience at 12 years old when my mom told me the guy who I had been seeing every Saturday for weekly father-daughter visits was also not my dad. But because he was on my birth certificate and they were married at the time, she just allowed that to continue, that assumption. And then for a variety of reasons that I won't go into here, she decided finally to come clean and said, how would you feel if he wasn't your dad? And I was like, it'd be great. This guy's an ass. So he was abusive in a lot of different ways. And turns out my stepfather was then miraculously my biological father, who then fast forward to 2016, I now realize is not my biological father either. Oh, wow. So it was my second NPE experience, and I didn't even know that there was such a thing as an NPE until I hired a genealogist to help me figure out who actually was my father after all. The man who raised me, who I thought was my biological father, died when I was 22. So I still will have no idea whether or not he knew, although I have a strong suspicion he did. Okay. And I don't think it mattered to him. Uh, and I, I think he was getting ready to maybe take some action on that. I think he was waiting for me to be 18 and graduate and then might have made a few other choices, but he died before he had that chance. So then I was introduced to a woman named Christina Fitzgibbons, who is my now podcast partner. Mm -hmm. She's an investigative genealogist and I paid her a large sum of money to go find my dad. And she did this quickly, like exceptionally quickly. I had prepared myself for this to be, you know, years, two, three years before I found anything out. And she had a name in two weeks. Wow. So she uploaded more tests that I took for Ancestry and GEDmatch and all the rest and uploaded those for me and then started managing all my accounts and noticed a strong match and then found that I matched not just one cousin, but a married couple on that side, which meant they were my grandparents. I have never heard of these people before. <laughs> I didn't know anything about them. They were Canadian, Scottish by way of Canada after several generations of having emigrated there. And miraculously, I had a brother I didn't know I had and a nephew and a sister-in-law. And it's just started getting really exciting, but frankly, overwhelming as well. From the moment I realized what the results meant to the moment I learned my last name really should have been McLeod instead of Klugman, I was overwrought with identity confusion. I don't remember being in a identity crisis in adolescence, but that is our first identity crisis developmentally. And I don't remember it being terrible, but this sure felt terrible. It was confusing. It was easily dismissed by people who didn't understand it. And that was exceptionally frustrating uh, with the exception of one friend who was adopted, who had all the right responses. And I was so glad 
I told her, the first thing she said was, oh my God, how do you feel about yourself right now? And I was like, oh, thank God somebody gets it. So I spent the next probably year and a half answering that question. How do you feel about yourself? It took a long time to rebuild that identity. And it was only complicated by the fact that at first my mom did not tell the truth about what I had discovered. I didn't even mention anything to her until I had already found his name and met him and established contact with my brother. And uh, I was like, there's really no point in pretending this hasn't happened or it's not real. The science is not real. You know, wherever you're going with this, let's, let's just bypass this. And finally she agreed. And that helped, I think, facilitate me coming to terms with identity a lot than had the farce been persistent. So because I wasn't really focusing on her side of the family anymore or demonstrating a lot of interest in you know, that sort of history, I was really focused on who are these grandparents that I never got a chance to know and where did they come from and what's the history? And wow, oh, I look enough like my grandmother that that has some meaning to me. Um, I look a lot like my mom, but I have some resemblance to my biological father and his side of the family. And that was pretty cool. So discovery of who can I be now that I'm not just an Italian with red hair and everybody would always say, well, you must be Irish. No, you know, my mom's Italian. My dad was Jewish by means of Russian and uh, German ancestry. So I thought, okay, well, you know, there's redheads everywhere. It's just less common. And people would insist, no, 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 you must be from Ireland or maybe Scotland. No, 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 I'm not. I'm mostly uh, Italian. And now I'm so little Italian and a ginormous amount of Scottish, no Russian, no German, which meant no Jewish. And that was a huge blow to my identity. I was not raised particularly observant in the Jewish faith, but it, it nonetheless was a, a big part of the cultural aspect of my family. And I did choose to pursue Judaism as an active observing uh, adult, even though I wasn't raised like that. So to suddenly have that not be part of my biological narrative was challenging. Interestingly enough, my mom would take her own DNA test because I think it started to <laughs> create enough confusion for her too. She's like, okay, well, let's see what this comes up with. Turns out she's Jewish. She's a Sephardic Jew on her Italian side of the family going back many, many generations. So I'm actually more Jewish now than I was when I even took the first DNA test because it's a matrilineal ancestry. <laughs> so in my quest to still be Jewish in the interim, I had officially converted. <laughs> I went through a bat mitzvah. I went through the mikvah. I did all the stuff that I never was uh, encouraged to do as uh, a teen or growing up as an observant Jew. So <laughs> I went through all of that for no reason at all, because <laughs> it turns out I'm still Jewish no matter what. Uh, it just helped reaffirm how I feel about it, I suppose. So long story short, I 
finally figured out who I am. I am a nice mix of all these different ancestries. I've spent way more time getting to know the Scottish part of myself because it's new and it holds so much more intrigue considering how I found out about it. But it doesn't diminish the fact that I'm still Italian. I still have uh, a Jewish connection. Uh, my daughter's bat mitzvah is in three weeks, so it's still very much part of my life. And uh, even though I feel like I am a different person, I realized that part of my identity reconstruction or reformation, if you want, was really just accepting that not all parts of me were completely erased to begin with. There was a significant amount of who I was that was still in place. But for some reason, little bits of our identity, whether it just be the cultural piece or just be the uh, gender piece or any of the 14 different dimensions that comprise identity, any one of those things tends to make you feel like all of them are unstable and uh, out the window. So that took a little bit of time, but once I recognized that, I started to feel settled and things are feeling pretty good at this point. Well, good, good. I, I appreciate you sharing all that. When did you say that that you took the test? Day 14, and then I didn't really understand what I was dealing with until two years later in 2016. Yeah. Okay. And so, and now you're, so you're about five years out. Yep. Okay. Uh, you found out in 2014 and uh, you really didn't know what you were looking at. Didn't really know to look for anything. So it kind of bypassed your attention for about two years. And then, uh, one day just hit you like a freight train and, um, and you, I'll, and I'll let you recap your, your ethnicity. If you want, you can do that way better than I can. <laughs> sure. So, uh, I went into a, a totally benign 23 and me test thinking it was going to show me varying degrees of largely Italian heritage with some Russian and German on my father's side. And then what it revealed was a very small percentage of Italian mixed in with some Spanish and then largely Scottish, never part of my family folklore at all, but kind of a welcome addition because I had always had a strange fascination with Scottish culture. So now it made sense why. I find that fascinating. And I know that... <clears throat> I have a story very similar about my culture mm -hmm. and heritage and fascination with it that I didn't understand why. And I know <clears throat> I've, I've talked to so many people who have gone through the same thing and I know you have too. Uh, I I've thought about, I've thought about exploring that in my dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's fascinating to me how those ancestral memories seem to be there. Yes, there's some cellular memory that it, it's hard to explain scientifically, right? Yeah. going to be really hard to test that unless it's just a quantitative, yeah. uh, sorry, rather qualitative, qualitative. Uh, exploration of people's stories, because it does seem to be rather common. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so, and you're five years out, and I was just getting ready to ask you, how how long 
and I know this, this is an easy question to answer, but just to summarize, because mo a lot of people watching that are going to watch that they're watching now and going to watch this and going to listen uh, are still early in their journey. And it's, they still don't see a light at the end of that tunnel. So how, how long did it take you before you, you started to really come to grips with it? And I, I know you said now that you're in a great place and, and, and I'm grateful for that. I, I am too. Um, but when did, when was it when you felt like you were turning that corner? About a year and a half in, uh, I don't know that I could pinpoint a specific day or month, but it was roughly a year and a half. And it was largely facilitated by the fact that BioDad and New Brother were so receptive to my reaching out and wanting a relationship. I was fairly certain from the moment I realized that it wasn't door number one or door number two, but door number three that was dad that I needed to have some sort of relationship with him. And I didn't know what that was going to really entail. I didn't really want to call him dad. He doesn't really deserve it. He wasn't really there. He no. did know about me from the beginning and chose to leave. And he and I have come to terms with that where he has said, we were both better off that I was not your dad. And I believe him. I had a great dad. Yeah. The man who raised me, I no issues with my upbringing, my childhood, you know, only, only what you would expect, like run of the mill, very privileged life. Yeah. So it's fine that he wasn't around. Can we, can we stop and, and circle around this a couple of times? Yeah. Uh, because in, in, I'd like to point out to people that don't know that you, you work with NPE clients, you're, you're a licensed therapist and work with NPE clients. And, and one, one of the biggest things is, is that so many people wish I hear people say, uh, so my father, my father was dead when I found out he died in 2004. Oh. And I, I regret not being able to meet him, but I do realize that though my, there are a lot of things in my childhood that were questionable that had he been in my life, it, I, I don't know what that would have entailed. Just like you're talking about that. He's this guy said that, that you were better off that way. And I don't know that people, people don't realize that. Yeah. Your life could have been better to have a relationship, but it could also have been a lot worse to have someone in your life that, that it didn't is really want to be there. Yeah. yeah. He didn't really want to be there. He wasn't set up for it. He wasn't set up to be a dad to his older son, my now brother. So he knew this about himself and I, I am okay with it. I feel like my training as a therapist really helped me get through, you know, that sort of reckoning with wait, you knew about me and you left. I was hollow for about a week. And then I was realized, okay, yeah, but if you were there, then the man who raised me, Wayne, he wouldn't have been there. And right. that's the life that I know. That's the life that I'm really good with. So I'm not going to cry over what could have been when what happened was really good. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not true for a lot of people. I've had several clients who have said, I would have been so much better off because things were so bad the way they were. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. But to, to get back to your question, how long did it take? 
it was easily facilitated because they were receptive. And I think that had everything to do with the fact that everybody was older, right? We had lived our lives. I don't need a parent, but I kind of like having a fatherly figure around. And my kids haven't had four grandparents. They have only had three grandparents their entire lives because my dad who raised me died when I was 22. Okay. Now they have four and it's kind of cool. Yeah. And he's Grandpa Tim. And I call him Pop because I've never called anybody that before. It's unique to our relationship. And it just didn't feel right to call him dad. Yeah. I, I like what you've done with that. Mm -hmm. I do. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it takes the sterility out of it, just calling Tim. Yeah. And it, it makes it a little more intimate, but it doesn't, it doesn't violate any intimacy you have with anyone. I, li I like that. I like the way you did that. Thank you. Yeah, um, it, it all evolved organically. And I think that was an important piece of it. When I first met him, <laughs> here's a story. When I first met him, he had ignored all of my attempts at contact. He returned the registered letter <laughs> that Christina helped me write. He wasn't returning the phone calls. And I'm, I'm enough of his daughter, evidently, <laughs> And enough of a stubborn Scott that I wasn't going to take that as an answer. So I went to his house <laughs> against Christina's instructions. She said, don't do it. And I said, I have to, I can't live with not knowing if he's going to reject me. He's got to do it to my face. I need to know what I'm dealing with. Yeah. And so he tried to reject me and he pretended he wasn't him when I knocked on the door. And I just thought to myself, I know what people look like when they're lying. This is what I do for a living. <laughs> and nobody looks at somebody the way he was looking at me when they're just trying to send you away from their doorstep. There was a longingness in his eyes that I, I just was like, that this doesn't feel right. I was confused. I wasn't prepared for the scenario that, yes, he used to live here, but not anymore. I'm not him. So I left. And then my husband said, do you really want to leave? We got about 10 minutes down the road. And I said, not really. This feels unanswered. And I think it was him. So I pulled up the one photo that we could find, his high school yearbook photo in black and white. Went back, furiously knocked on the door again. He was really irritated with me by this point. Yeah. What do you want? He came out with. And I just shoved my phone in his face. And I said, I think this is you. And I think you know my mom. And I think you're my dad. And he was just dumbfounded and he was quiet for a very long time. And then I said, I want nothing from you. I just want to know about my dad. I just want some information because that will help me feel like I know what's going on. If you don't want anything else other than just to give me a little information, that's fine. And he was like, all right, come in. So three hours later, I had all the information. I had an entire story especially that he knew about me from the beginning. But here's where it also got complicated for me. I had been used to kind of driving this for the previous year. I was the one finding the genealogist to find all this information. I was the one making decisions about what to do and what not to do. And now I had found him and he had some say in how this was gonna go for him too. He had told nobody about me. And I was really excited about having a brother. I was raised an only child. 
we, always we, wanted an only an older brother, by the way, always. It was like a strange wow. preoccupation. So and when so, you say he hasn't, he didn't tell anyone. I mean, he didn't tell anyone. Not a soul. His parents died not knowing about me. Oh, wow. He didn't tell his siblings anything. Wow. So when I said, I would really like to have my brother's contact information, Christina was having a little bit of trouble finding that. And uh, she said, I'll, I'll find it eventually. But as long as you're going there, see if you can get it from him. So I did. And, and I got a lot of resistance from him there. And it started to feel really uncomfortable because suddenly I wasn't in control of this anymore. <laughs> it was left up to him as well. And it, it took me a full week to realize and settle down. All right. So even though this is about me, like all about me, there are other players in this now. And I have to understand that they have their own process and their own timing. And I've had a whole year to adjust to this and he hasn't, he's had three hours. So that's not fair. And, you know, I really had to talk myself down. What I didn't realize when he said, hold on, this is going to happen, but it's going to happen my way. I didn't realize that the moment I left, he outed himself to everybody he knew. He got on the <laughs> phone with my brother. He got on the phone with his sister, his brother, uh, sister-in-law, like everybody, friends that he hadn't talked to in a long time, ex-wives. Like He got on the phone with everybody and was like, blah, here it is. <laughs> I just didn't know that for a few months. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. That, 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 that's hysterical. So uh, when you're telling this story, I mean, I've got a million things going through my head. I, I, first of all, I I think I can envision him just jumping on the phone and and letting people know. And, you know, some people, some people, uh, I, I, one of the things going through my mind is that you get so many NPEs that contact the family and there is that shock factor and they don't take just a few minutes out themselves everybody it 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 takes time and, and sometimes it takes a lot of time um and sometimes they just don't do it yeah and sometimes they they never do it and that, that's unfortunate uh, but that's hysterical that it just took him a few minutes and he was he, he, do you think he was bluffing was he trying to be this just trying to be tough about it and then uh yes <laughs> yes. And I don't think he was counting on me being enough like him that I was, I wasn't going to stand for it. Uh, <laughs> it. It all worked out, but to your point for, for the people who are not getting a welcome reception, their identity resolution is so complex and um, convoluted at that point. that I think it's a lot harder to achieve any sort of homeostasis, right? Coming back to a sense of balance. Yeah. Because you are not being heard, you are not being recognized, and you may even lack basic information. You may lack your basic medical information or just names of people that you're related to or the stories that are part of your biology, even if they're not part of your sociology. And that's what I'm noticing in my work with clients it seems to fall in two pretty distinct categories. The people who have some reception, whatever the degree, are faring way better than the people who don't. Yeah. Yeah, and I, um, I, I, I lost my train of thought. That's okay. 
think about too many things at once. You know, this is just a tough problem and I, and I want to help everyone. And I I know that you feel the same way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the advice, the best advice I can give people is just let it play out let it take its time. You know, people, a lot of times, um, we take it so personally and you say, and you said a minute ago, you said this was about you. And then you realize that there were other people involved and including half siblings. Mm-hmm. And I, I think half siblings just get caught up in this, uh, in the split, right? So you have, and, and they're, they're going, they're going to side with the person they're most comfortable with the person they know, at least right. until it shakes out and they can, they can see some clarity. Yeah. But uh, man, is that, that rejection uh, is just terrible up front. It is. I, I see it in the work that I do with people and it's heartbreaking. And I, I get the question inevitably, how long is this going to be? How am I going to feel like this forever? And no, the answer is no, because we never feel like any one thing forever, but because our identity is unstable, everything feels unstable. Right. And when we're thrashing about in the water, we try to grab onto anything for that right. stability. Right. So to that point, you know, the, the conventional wisdom about being in riptides and what have you is not to fight the current, Right. let yourself go. So using that as an analogy, how can we do that in this situation? I'd like to think that I, I did that when I was finally reflected with his process, like, no, 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 <laughs> you've come to me. And now this is partly my process as well, Yeah. but it took me saying, all right, I have to give up some control over this. Yeah. And, and I had control over it in many ways regarding my mom. But now with him, I had no control over it. And it was just going to have to be the way it was. And letting go of that is actually quite helpful. Yeah. So were you were you the type of person that you're used to, 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 to controlling the, the scenarios? That, why it was so yeah. difficult? Or was it... or you said yes. You be you didn't hesitate. No, I've done enough of my own work <laughs> on yep. the other side of the couch, as it were, particularly as a result of this experience, that um, I didn't realize that I had control issues until I really had to flush this out, and then I realized my entire life I had trust and or control issues because I had the first NPE experience when I was twelve, and. Now with my therapist hat on, I can look backward and say, well, of course you didn't trust. And of course you had control issues because you didn't know who your dad was already once. And now it happened twice. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's, it's the trauma response. It's thrashing in the water and grabbing a hold of someone. It's kind of, I'm glad we're headed down this road for people that uh, are on, are on unstable ground and they don't now, now we really don't feel like we fit in. Okay. You know, and most of us, most of us have always felt like there was something there subconsciously, unconsciously that we didn't know was there. We didn't know what it was, but we never really felt like we fit in anyway. Now we yeah. know we don't fit in. And so we tried to find the people that we think we're supposed to fit in with yeah. and they shut the door and reject us. And it, it's insult to injury. It's adding salt to the wounds. But I, I think the, the important thing is the trauma response that, that, that drive to control everything, control the variables is a trauma response to, to stop the fear that things are out of control, that you can't control them. And the more that we control the, 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 
the more safe we feel. And, yeah, we're um, a species that likes to feel in control. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, so I appreciate you admitting that here because I'm sure that a lot of people who are going to need to hear that, mm-hmm. uh, that it, it is frightening and it is, it can be lonely, you know, and it, this sometimes, sometimes I, I've heard stories that just are amazing and they're almost fairy tales, but then I, I hear, you know, there are a lot that aren't and uh, it takes work yeah. and support. And a little bit of patience for the NPE, right? You've got to have patience with the fact that negative feelings feel awful. And sometimes we have to process them and get them out, even though that feels awful up front. But the long term is that they feel better after you process them yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard my analogy on that. I'm a, I'm a retired firefighter. And there's a, statistically many people die, especially children die in a fire because they hide from the fire. Right. They find them under furniture and closets. And so the analogy is I use is that we have two choices. We can, we can hide in the closet and, and pretend the fire is not going to come and get us. And eventually it will, or we can run down the stairs through the fire and out the door. And we're, yes. we're probably going to get burned in the process, but but we're going, we're going to survive and be better off. There's no way of avoiding that. This situation lends itself very well to that analogy. There's no way to avoid getting burned. The moment you find out what has happened and and that you're not the biological offspring of somebody, you've already been burned. The damage is done. That's right. I don't know if you remember when, when we first met, it was at the the first Retreat. retreat. Yeah. And the song that I played in my uh, in my presentation there at the end was the song that I listened to on loop during the first probably six to eight months of this discovery. And it was Rodney Atkins, If You're Going Through Hell, Just Keep Going. <laughs> yes, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just like your analogy. Don't hide from it. Keep going, barrel yeah. through, and you'll probably fare better. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it's never it's never as bad as we make it out to be in our head. Yes, it gets um, so distorted up there. Yeah, everything gets so distorted, and that's what's happening to our moms, to the biological family. All these distortions because they're not talking about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, that I lost my train of thought again. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> And, and I don't know if it was something, I mean, I don't know how spectacular it was. It could have not been right. anything, but it could have been like the most brilliant thing I've ever said. And now we'll never know. It's and just, now we'll never know. It was all that organic food in Costa Rica. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> no, no, that's worn off. I promise you. <laughs> it's completely, completely gone. I, I know what I was going to say. Um, the, the, the another analogy I use about this is that, you know, our house is built on a foundation and that this, this blows half the foundation out from underneath the house. This isn't like just, you know, breaking a window or blowing a wall down. It takes out the, half the foundation and we have to rebuild that foundation for the house to stand. But in a lot of ways, and you're a therapist, so I, I want to see your, I want your opinion on this. Okay. Unless you completely disagree with me and then, uh, I want you to still agree with me and then send me an email later. Uh, I don't know if my fragile ego can take it. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, in a lot of ways, now I had, I had, 
I had some personal experiences about about six, 16 or 17 years ago that really turned my life upside down. It was self-inflicted in a lot of ways, but it forced me to deal with the trauma from my childhood and, and really changed my entire life. So I had skills to deal with this when this happened. Yeah. yeah so, um, which is why I, I, which is why I coach and I'm so into psychoeducation to teach people resiliency, um, this, the healthy way to handle these type things, which is so critical. I mean, there's not enough of us, Lord knows we need probably about 10 times the amount of people we have doing this. Um, but in a lot of ways, some of the, I, I think as painful as this is, this is one of the ways I, I joke that people spend, they spend decades and, and thousands of dollars in therapy trying to get to the single point that this event pushes them to. It completely rips the veil of illusion off of everything and you have no choice but to deal with it. Where if we're, if we're in therapy and we, you know, we have this facade that we're living this life, this character, these personas, and we go to therapy and we can talk about it, but then we can go back and step back into the character yep. and watch TV or, you know, do whatever we do. Or you could choose to not even disclose things to your therapist, right. which happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But this is, uh, this is different. This is one of those things that is right up there with losing a loved one and the, the, the things that really are, are very detrimental to our well-being that force us to take a long, hard look in the mirror and really put things back together the way they should be. Would you agree with that? I do. I feel like this is on point with the analogies that we both made about the straight line, walking from the point of trauma to the point of resolution, go straight through it rather than this circuitous route that's going to take you all over the damn place only to end up where you need to end up anyway but with a lot more struggle and pain you perceive that it's going to be more painful to just deal with it up front but i promise you that is not the case and there are really good trauma interventions that help you do that very efficiently emdr is one of them yeah which is one of your practice techniques right you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that so EMDR, for those who don't know what it means, it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So it's a confusing name. And it only mentions eye movements, which now we have three different senses that we can employ. Eye movements, auditory, or vibrating paddles on, on your hands. But what it does is essentially mimic the way that the two hemispheres of the brain process information all day long about everything. But when we have a trauma, if you kind of view your brain like a big ball of pizza dough, the trauma is a little piece of that dough that gets pulled off and set aside. So then it is not having access to your general resiliency and coping and executive functioning. It instead is functioning over on its own, on its own little hamster wheel, which kind of locks it in short-term memory. So for those familiar with PTSD, here's where your PTSD is, where it's just throwing up arousal signals at you all the time. EMDR, because it uses the brain's own way of processing information by going across the invisible midline of your body, either with eyes, ears, or vibrating paddles, helps reintegrate that traumatic experience back into the brain's functioning. It takes away the emotional components associated with specific memories, doesn't change any of the content memory, or make it or make you feel like you forgot it or it hasn't happened. It doesn't do any of that. It just takes 
the emotional content and reprocesses it so that you can convert that memory into long-term memory finally. And it's when that conversion happens that you start to feel good. You start to feel normal again and not traumatized. Nice. Okay. And this is, and you use this as a big part of your practice? I use this probably 70% of the time because when I'm not working with MPE clients, I'm working with first responders. So okay. I, one of my specialties is in first responder communities. So sheriff, local police, uh, EMT, fire, DEA, all sorts of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about your, um, the work you're doing with MPEs, your parental identity discovery? I would love to. I thought you might. So one of the things that came out of this for me was a realization I had all the tools that I needed in order to help other mental health clinicians work with people like us. I had been trained in trauma. I had been trained in anger management. I had been trained in grief. Uh, I had chosen a family systems orientation as my model of choice in terms of how I work with clients. None of this, I believe, is coincidental. I think this is all synchronistic. So I thought, I actually know how to incorporate all these different modalities into a treatment program that will help us. And I know it will help us because these are the things that I naturally sought out as the NPE, as the client. So I have some edification. This will actually do some good. So I created parental identity discovery and I use it in my practice to walk people through steps of healing, um, identity reformation, trauma, if we are going to use EMDR, et cetera. And then I take that whole curriculum and I train other mental health professionals how to do it as well. Because you've probably heard as many times as I have, how many therapists are dismissing MPEs, yes. feelings and identity issues and issues with family. Why don't you just get over it? And he's still your dad. What's the problem? I, I can't even comprehend how a professional mental health counselor would respond this way. This, it's icky. So this is my hope that this training will help educate them how they actually should be responding and that there is a verifiable scientific reason why this is happening. I, I often link it to grief and loss. If you had a client coming in saying, I just lost my mom and I don't know who I am anymore, would you dismiss them? Would you say, well, you had, she had a good life, right? She died at, she was 92. She lived a great life. What are you so sad about? Right. No, you don't say that. So why would you say it to anybody in our position? And I think it's just lack of education. Yeah. And, and maybe a little bit, of, and I don't mean this in an, in, in the negative way that sounds, but maybe a little bit of, of hubris when, when you have, when you're used to having the answers and then you don't have an answer, okay. it's kind of human nature to sidestep the question. And I think a little bit of that, it might be, um, oh, it's not, you know, downplaying it and oversimplifying the issue and, and not addressing it. So yeah. I'm, I'm grateful that you're, you're doing this. So you, you so you're, you're training mental health professionals to work. Yeah. With Two or three times a year, we do a webinar and the next one's on September 25th. Okay. You can sign up for it on my website. There's an Eventbrite link there under the professional development page. Okay. I really enjoy it. I feel like, I feel like I, there's an illumination for the rest of our community every time I'm able to engage other mental health 
clinicians around this and, and they are surprised, right? And, and here's what's a big surprise, how prolific the MPE experience is in human nature. It's been around in our literature for centuries, millennia, if you want to go with Jesus Christ, the ultimate NPE reveal, right? right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's been around. It's every Greek myth. Every demigod is an MPE. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> every superhero. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a yeah. strange fascination we have with it. Yeah. Well, and you know, it, it's because it's, it's part of our unconscious, part of our, our culture. Uh, we've been, this is what human beings have been doing for thousands of years. We're just now the technology to get caught doing it. Right. People are going to have sex one way or the other. Who cares? That was how some of the, how should I describe it? Some of how I resolved some things with my mom, she still holds a lot of guilt. Oh my God. You know, I can't believe that. And I, I'm like, look, in the beginning, I felt the same way and I was pretty angry at you. But in the end, I have to realize if you hadn't done that, if you hadn't had the affair, I wouldn't exist. So how mad at yes. you can I be? I wouldn't be here. I like being here. This, this works for me, even though there's been some disturbing revelations along the way. Uh, and as a woman, I can understand she was miserably married to her second husband who had come back from two tours in Vietnam and in hindsight, now knowing he was totally screwed up with PTSD and nobody knew it. Yeah. And she took matters into her own hands. It was the seventies, it's Marin County, right? So it's the San Francisco Bay area. There's lots of free love. And I really don't blame her for making that choice. I couldn't say that I would make a different one if I were in her position. Yeah. She had the right to make her own happiness. Yeah. And, and your, your point is spot on. I make this point all the time. Uh, the, the odds of conception are un, unfactorable when we really get down. I, I, I looked it up one time. I mean, it's just, it's just un, the odds of a human being being here, being here are unfactorable. Mm -hmm. And the fact that with, your, I, with our biological parents, not only if they don't meet, but if they don't get together that particular day, and you aren't conceived in that within probably a second in either direction, you don't exist. Someone else exists. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it's NPs naturally say, I want to be my, you know, my birth certificate father's child. They, they want to put it back in the box and it doesn't ever go back in the box the way it came out of the packaging. It never does. We try to take it back after Christmas. Okay. You're putting... <laughs> You're putting scotch tape on the package and the box is bowed and yeah. we can just, tell you already broke into it. So let's, let's just exactly talk right. over. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it, it has to start with the gratitude for being conceived. It has to. And, and I know, I, I know that that's difficult and I know it's even harder under there are other circumstances that make it even, even harder, like in, in, in situations of, of rape and sexual, sexual assault. assault. Yeah. It's you're still a miracle. I don't care who you are. It's the odds are staggering that you're even here, that you're the bloodline even made it that far is staggering. And then the odds of conception are staggering. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think that really is the firm foundation to reconstruct your identity, just to be grateful that you're alive. 
anything else, you know, anything else is just an added bonus, I think. At some point in the process, you have to dare to believe that you have a right to exist regardless of who raised you. That's right. Because we take in so much of our ancestral identity through our biological family that, and this is gonna be part of my dissertation, the effect of genealogical bewilderment on identity and why that's a thing, why we need to have that as such a big part of our identity composition that in the end, this forces you to question, well, who am I now that I'm not related to this guy, but I'm related to these people that I don't know anything about. I don't have a bond with them. I only have just learned their names. There's no background. They've not been to my birthday parties. They've not been to my wedding. There's no history there, but there is an immediate compulsion to create history and, and to be accepted by that. So there's gotta be a biological, scientific, psychological reason why that is. And maybe that's just part of promotion of the species. If you wanna really oversimplify it, I don't know. Yeah, well, I don't know that we can solve that in a few minutes if you're doing your dissertation on that, can we? <laughs> no, but that's what I, I hope to shed some light on. There's a lot of research out there on identity. Eric Erickson, who is the kind of father of identity, was himself an MPE. He was conceived from an affair. I did not know that. Yeah. But so that created his preoccupation with identity and how it evolves over the lifespan. There's an enormous breadth of work around identity, starting with him and a lot of other people. I hope to add to that with the genetic component. So I created a, a wheel, so to speak, of identity dimensions. There are 14 of them on there, ranging from your political affiliation to your nationality, your ancestry, your gender, your sexuality, your relationship roles, right? You are a father, a husband, you are a professional, you know, all these different relationships that you have. 14 different dimensions. Everybody is going to have slightly different percentages over which dimensions are more influential than others. So for some, their ancestral dimension is going to be quite large. If you were to make an actual pie chart, it might take up the majority, especially for us NPEs. It suddenly becomes enormous. But for others, their sexuality dimension is much bigger. And that takes up a larger portion, whereas the ancestry piece, maybe they have less concern with. It doesn't impact them in the same way. So everybody's is a little bit different. That's part of what I'm teaching other mental health clinicians. You have to see everybody for how they're coming in, not how you think they should fit into the mold. And I'm curious as to why for some people, genealogical bewilderment, the cellular memory and pull towards something is so uh, important. Yeah. Well, that, that's fascinating. And I, I'm, I'm fascinated with that, that kind of stuff too. So I, I can't wait to see what you come up with. And I'd love to have some, I'd love to have dialogue with you about all this. Um, so happy to do that. Yeah, I could so, talk about this stuff all day long. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. So like, and just to throw this out there with what you're talking about, it, it's not completely related, but it, but it is related in the, in the grander scheme of things. Uh, in my genealogy, my mother's paternal line mm -hmm. is descended from nobility in, in England. Okay. My father's, my paternal line with my biological father is also descended from nobility in the, 
uh, from the English crown. Mm -hmm. And I have points of history where both lines were in the king's court in England for several decades or a couple, uh, two or three generations. Okay. Then they were both in Jamestown at the same time. I was just there. Oh, really? Yes. Fascinating. That's, that's synchronistic. Yeah. They were both in Jamestown at the same time, in the founding of Jamestown in the early to mid 1600s. Mm-hmm. They were both wealthy landowners that come from nobility. You know, they knew each other. Yep. My, my mother uh, was my born, my grandmother was born and raised in, in Indianapolis. So my mother was, she was born in Maryland, but raised in Indianapolis and moved to Indianapolis. And my biological father grew up in Virginia or West Virginia and then moved in his adulthood to Indianapolis and he met my mother and conceived. So three points in history, yeah. my mother's paternal line and my father lines are crossing um, with that. Yeah. 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 That cannot be a coincidence. No, it just it can't. So there, there's something at work here that we don't know what it is. And it gets into, uh, I, you know, um, I, I, well, I, I, you know, I've heard people are genetically attracted to each other, that they, they're uh, through pheromones that they recognize. Yep. Uh, so that we're attracted to people and we don't know why we're attracted to them, but we're attracted on a cellular level. Yeah, like the way level. they smell. Yep, mm -hmm. like the way they without even realizing we just like the way they smell. <laughs> Truly. I actually experienced that with my husband when I first met him. Like, hey, you smell good. All right. Okay. <laughs> Go on a date. You <laughs> passed pass the sniff test. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You'll have to tell him. That That's what my mother-in-law says. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. You passed the sniff test. Yep. Uh, awesome. Well, I, I appreciate you joining me. What a great conversation we can. Uh, I think you said it best yesterday that we uh, we always have a lot to talk about. Yeah, it happens easily, right? This is yeah. a topic we could easily talk about forever. I'm sure all your viewers as well, because normally that's my experience at the end of 50 minutes of a session. They're like, but I have so much more to say. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, thank you for all the work that, that you're doing. Um, there's so much that needs to be done. And there, there's just so many people hurting. And there's not enough people that know how to help them, like we talked about a few minutes ago. So I, I, I appreciate the work that you do. You. And uh, yeah, I really do. And I'm looking forward, I'm looking forward to your dissertation. And uh, let me make and, a little plug. I'm going to need a sample size. So anybody who's interested in telling their story, uh, it'll be a phenomenological study about genealogical bewilderment on identity. And uh, I'm looking for probably 10 to 20 people to serve okay. in the sample. Well, um, so I have, a, I have an NPE mailing list. Okay. And let's, let's get together and put something together and we'll send an email okay. out and see if we can't get you some volunteers. Sounds good. So, and I, I'd, love, I'd love to have you back. I, I'm looking ahead okay. to 2022 and um, Maybe we can uh, we can do some surveys and see what people want you to come talk about. We can absolutely uh, and hit some some exact and, and I'd like to get Christine on here too. So okay. I'll be in touch with her. So I, uh, when are you going to publish mine? When am I going to publish what my the, my podcast interview? Oh, we need to redo it. The audio was disintegrated in some places, and I oh. just couldn't patch it together. Okay. It just sounded bad. So we okay. need to start over. Okay. Yep. Well, let's do it. 
just let me know. I'm so far behind. <laughs> yeah. You can imagine, yeah. as I'm a professor, I have three classes. I'm a student with the doctoral research and I have a full-time practice and I still have a family that I'd like to see occasionally. <laughs> so I'm really far behind. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I, I Did you know that when I came home from vacation, I was uh, I was laid off from my university job. Did you know that? No. Yeah, so best... <laughs> I was so I was so far behind. Best thing that could have happened to me. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it was it, it was out. devastating. I loved my job, and but uh, but now I get to do this, and and I'm catching up. And okay, good. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I I I understand being behind and and all that. But yeah, just, well, just, we good. We started our conversation by talking about how little time we had and what it was like going through doctoral programs where the amount of reading is yeah inundative and it's challenging to find time to have a normal life it is it's not only hard to find the time to read it, it you just you just can't pick the book up you have to disengage from everything else going on and for me it ta it takes I, I i can't quantify but it takes a while to to change the gears of my mind over to get back into that um I, someone told me that that who had their doctorate I had several people I talked to and they basically all told me, they said, it will, it will be the, the hardest thing you've ever done. It'll test every fiber of your being to stay committed uh, through the whole process. You'll want to quit because of life, because of family, because, uh, and then, you know, obviously you get to the dissertation and then there's, you know, people who want to completely shred it uh, in front of you and you have to, you have to defend it. So, I, I'm finding that true, and I, I'm not. Uh, you're getting ready to work on your dissertation. I'm still, I'm still a ways out from that, but, but I love it. You love it too, don't you? I I do like the process. I don't like the tediousness of the reading and turning in homework assignments, where I'm like, all right, everything else has to go away, and I have to sit down and write this homework assignment, which feels dumb sometimes. But I I do like learning how to think about things in these ways. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I, I'm looking forward to reading your research. Thank you. Yeah. Looking forward to writing it. <laughs> <laughs> and getting it over with, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll be in touch. We'll get, uh, okay. we'll get an email out and then we'll, we'll, we can talk about what we're going to do in 2022 and we'll have you back. All right. Okay. All right. Thanks, Thanks Jody. Everyone. It's always a pleasure. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.